Hey, good morning, church family. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's always a pleasure uh, to just meet collectively as a group of people, be encouraged. Um, thank you, worship team, leading us before the throne of Jesus. Um, as Aaron said, it's, it's good to just be reminded of calming our hearts before God. We all come in um, with the busyness of life. I know um, Aaron said maybe it's been a slow week. It hasn't been one of those for me. Um, it's like a 110-mile-an-hour sprint most of the time. And just to be reminded uh, that our king is on his throne and that we serve a great God. And uh, to be encouraged uh, among you all is just encouraging for me. So I just um, need that often in my life. So thank you. Um, we're going to begin um, in Luke chapter 14, uh, verses 25 through 33 today. And if, if you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles that are scattered uh, amongst the room. And um, if uh, you want to look there, it's, I believe it's on page 729 of one of those Bibles. Um, and then there's also uh, uh, an outline that I had um, on the far, uh, your right side of the row. If you like those, maybe ask the person to, to send them down your direction. Some people hate them, so it, it really doesn't bother me at all if you uh, make a paper airplane, uh, you know, and chuck it into the trash. Uh, whatever uh, best helps you worship God this morning, that's what it's about. So as we get there, let's, uh, let's begin our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are hungry, Lord, because in your name is power. Lord, those are such uh, great truths that we sang this morning. Lord, the, the desire of our hearts here this morning is to, to see that, Lord, to be changed by it and to live it, Lord, in the city of Greeley. And we, we ask that you are kind to us this morning. Incline our hearts to receive from your word the things that you would teach us. Lord, help my words to be soaked in the power of the Holy Spirit to go forth, not as my words, but as your commissioning to your church. Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anything that is untrue that I have to say, Lord, would you blow it away like chaff in the wind, that it may not set upon our hearts, but that we would be encouraged and challenged to see the mission of who you are and the purpose for who you are and to live that uh, out in thankfulness for what you've done in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask that this be a time of worship unto you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. If you'd follow along as I read. I'm reading out of the ESV this morning, so it's going to be a little bit different. Um, if you have an NIV or an NASB or what other version you're um, reading from. But uh, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple... God is a missional God. He has and is acting out in the past. He's acting out in the present and he is going to continue to act out in the future and he acts with purpose. His actions have an aim. They, are, they have intention. They are strategic. They are calculated. The prophet Isaiah tells us that so shall the word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing for which I sent it. God is acting. He is mission-minded, purpose-motivated. And what's more, he's, he's not only a God that's acted, he's also a God that has progressively revealed his intentions. His strategy, his mission through this. Spoken by God, penned by men. These pages are one book centered on one story, centered on one faithful king, and that's King Jesus. And that king is communicated in these pages that what every page of scripture is centered on. And that's the life, the death, and the resurrection of this king, Jesus. And up to this point, in Luke, the author has been chronicling the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, how Jesus has called his disciples, how he's exercised power over nature over demons, over disease, and even death. And where somewhere, as uh, Aaron alluded to several weeks ago, there's a turning point in, in Luke, uh, right around chapter 9, where we begin to see more clarity okay, towards the mission and the purpose of this man, Jesus. As he heads towards Jerusalem. And it's, it's in these last several chapters that we've been able to see different dialogues with this man, Jesus. As he's heading towards Jerusalem with these various different groups of people. As, he, as Jesus is knowingly, willingly going towards this Jerusalem. This place where he's going to be betrayed and then soon after he's going to be killed. And as we have read through this chapter, we've seen the mission in different parables, specifically in this chapter, chapter 14, different illustrations, all communicating one mission-minded purpose. Jesus is peeling back the layers of blindness with one central truth. And that truth is what he came to accomplish. It's his actions, it's his mission, it's his purpose. And that truth is what he came to do. Whether it's the healing on the Sabbath or the parable of the wedding feast or the great banquet, Jesus' purpose, Luke's purpose in chronicling it for us is for us to first and foremost see Christ's purpose, to see and identify the good news, the gospel in these pages. And this gospel, Jesus' purpose, 
is countercultural to those who hear it. And it doesn't really matter if it's like these first century Palestinians who received it. It doesn't really matter if it's some 2,000 years, ago, uh, years later for us in America. It goes against the grain of our internal wiring. It rubs up on us. It's foreign to us. It's foreign to them. It's foreign to people to push back against family traditions like we saw at the beginning of chapter 14. It's foreign to see humility as being the avenue for greatness. It's foreign to selflessly invest in the eternal health of people with no immediate reward. All of those things are foreign. And this text that we're going to look in today is probably more foreign. It's possibly more provocative. It's definitely more countercultural than even the three parables before. And the only reason that is is because Jesus kind of cuts from the chase and he says, okay, you want the skinny, here's the skinny. If anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and child and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? What's more, what action steps is he calling his disciples to? And because this is is one story centered on one person. And therefore, there has to be continuity between this message. It's got to be consistent with the totality of Scripture. There can't be something here that says, ah, that doesn't fit. Okay? So this text has to be compatible with texts like 1 Timothy 5, where it talks about providing for your family. It's got to be consistent with Ephesians 5, which commands and talks about the love and respect between a husband and a wife. It's got to be consistent with Deuteronomy 6, which talks about training up your children in the way of God. It's got to be consistent with Matthew 18 or Galatians 6 where we're called to, in love and respect and in gentleness, point out people's sin and lovingly push them towards Jesus. By no means is Scripture telling us to hate our families. Yet, as broken, self-focused people, we all act, apart from Jesus, preoccupied with ourselves, don't we? Either directly or indirectly, Scripture tells us that we love darkness rather than the light. John 3, 19. That we love evil more than we do good. Psalms 53, 2. It's what got in the way of our fellowship with our perfect king back in Genesis chapter 3. And it's what plagues humanity to this very day. And if we're not careful... That seed of self-centered, human-focused sickness can actually weed its way in to our reading and our understanding of this very text today. So that's something we need to be careful with, guard against. Because the primary point that Jesus wants to make here isn't about man, Okay, let me say that again. The primary point of this text, these groups of verses, isn't about you. It's about God. It's about exploding our love and affection for God's mission and his purpose and his gospel. 
not to downplay the love and affection between family members, but to take these two things and juxtapose them together. The the natural love and affection between family and the unnatural love and affection that we as believers should have for God's mission, his purpose, his gospel. So the, the, the primary point here is focused on the foreign love in discipleship, increasing our understanding of that love. Using family and the affection and that affection that we have as a relative standard that we should love less than our love for loving his mission, his purpose, his gospel. Because as disciples, as followers, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus today, okay, you have understood and you have entrusted your life to the mission and to the purpose of his gospel. The gospel Believing that before anything else existed, God was. Okay? Perfect and set apart, wholly self-sustaining. Needing nothing. And yet chose to create humanity. To be in perfect fellowship with himself. You go back and look at the beautiful, beautiful display of what happens in Genesis chapter 2 and part of chapter 3 is that God had perfect fellowship, perfect unity with his creation as the creator came and dwelled amongst the creation. But you don't have to read too far into this great story to see that humanity jacked that up. We rebelled, we acted out against this great king, their creator, and God being perfect, being righteous, being the standard of perfection, pronounced judgment on the rebellion. Just as a just judge pronounces a correct verdict, God called us guilty because he is righteous. And that guilty condition and the condition of the rebellion spread through all humanity, affecting all, condemning all. And this is why in Romans chapter 5 or Ephesians chapter 2, the but God statements are so sweet. You get this kind of like weighty significance of the condition of man apart from God and that's heavy and that's supposed to be heavy. Because the joy that follows it is supposed to be that much sweeter. But God. Not because we were worth it. But because of his own motivation of love. Strategically crafted a mission where he would redeem the rebellion. Shoulder the legal demands that we had been placed on the shoulders of the guilty by sending his son Jesus. Jesus lived a life in perfect obedience to his heavenly father's call, accomplishing perfect obedience, something that we are called to do but can't. He unjustly but willingly was put to death on a Roman cross, whereas Colossians 2 says he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's sweet. 
where the great exchange took place, where Jesus sat in the seat that we should be sitting in, the seat of judgment that would absorb the wrath of God for the payment of our disobedience, where those who trusted in him would sit in the seat of mercy. Where he calls you a child. Where God will see you perfect as his son is perfect, eternally safe in the hands of Jesus' completed perfect work on that cross. Where three days later, after being confirmed, then he validated what he did on the cross by conquering the consequences, the repercussions of sin being death. Where he rose and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, where he now is calling to his children to come and entrust in these things. As a believer, you have entrusted yourself to that gospel. That good news, that mission, and that purpose. So this is God's mission amongst humanity. This is what we are called to keep in perspective of in our lives. What we are called to love more than our fathers to love more than our mothers love more than our wives love more than our children love more than our brothers love more than our sisters and yes and even our own self this is the first call in this passage the first call of the gospel the call of rejecting oneself and accepting Jesus the call to love the foreign love of discipleship But Jesus wants to be clear on this call of accepting him. He, he does not only include him standing in our place of punishment and us receiving his imputed righteousness. It also includes his role as Lord and King over your life and mine. Verse 27 Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus uses a powerful illustration to communicate the lengths of his lordship over his followers. So think if you can, um, back at this time, you've got this, this set of Jewish people who are, who are largely able to exercise and observe a lot of the historical traditions that they, that they had as a culture. But they weren't a sovereign nation. They weren't completely autonomous. They were ruled by a foreign power. And this foreign power was Rome. And Rome ruled with great authority. Implementing to those who they found guilty of severe crimes, the punishment of crucifixion. Crucifixion was brutal. Where a man would be hung upon a Roman cross, stretched out, so that his, the perpetrator's diaphragm would be elongated so that the individual actually had to use his own feet to scrape his body up this post that's behind him so that he could catch a breath. The purpose was to have this man suffocate over time. And if the individual did not suffocate, the Roman soldiers, after a period of time that they deemed uh, was sufficient, would come by and break the individual's legs so that he would. And then quite possibly, they would then take a spear 
and slide it up underneath the rib cage, up through the shoulder blade to ensure that you were dead. It's not a pretty picture. What's more is that in addition to this brutal death, Rome backtracked a little bit and also demonstrated Rome's authority and power and control because they publicly took these individuals and that crossbar that that man is going to hang on and die on, they, they actually, those were actually portable. Okay? The vertical piece was usually set in the ground and they would have the individual carry that vertical crossbar to the place in which he'd be killed. Publicly pronouncing on this individual, Rome's right and you are wrong. We are king, you are subservient to my kingship. So when Jesus is articulating the idea of discipleship, the idea of following him, and he's saying, if you want to follow me, you must carry the crossbar in the way that I carried the crossbar. He's saying, I demonstrated complete submission, not to Rome, not to some influential group of Jews, but to my heavenly father's actions. His mission, his purpose. And if you want to be mine, you likewise must give up all in pursuit of the mission that I and my Father are pursuing. And that pursuit is for my name to go forth and that you would be my followers, making followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Being my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all of Samaria, gathering people to my table, not just from the lanes and the streets, but from the hedges and the highways so that my table might be full. That is what this one book, this one story centered on one person is about. his actions, his mission, his purpose. And that's significant because that means that as we come into this place and we gather and as we sing or we go to lunch with people or we connect with people in the office or whether it's on a play date for moms or, or whatever or if we go to church uh, uh, house on Fridays or if we go play some softball game on Wednesday, that means that all of that isn't for you. It's not for me. It's for him. It's about him. This story, as much as we want to make it and manipulate it, isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's always been about him and it's always going to be about him. And that's why Jesus gives this next couple illustrations of reflection. Verse 28, for which of you desiring 
To build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is still yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What's the point? Jesus says, you understand that it's about me and what it looks like to be about me. Now think. And ponder the significance of that. You may, li- you may like the idea of some of the things that Jesus does. Our society does. He's a good teacher. Man, he really helped out society in a lot of ways because he got, you know, he healed a bunch of those sick people. Maybe you like the idea that, you know, he, he, uh, he's a free pass into heaven. I don't know. Whatever it is, Jesus cannot be parceled out. The Jesus that's articulated in this story cannot be taken bits and pieces that you like or that are easy for you to swallow and reject others. Jesus' call to discipleship, his call to follow him, follow his mission is articulated in this story. And as followers, we are supposed to yield to his lordship and to his kingship. Regardless of the cost. Therefore, contemplate. Consider. Because this is heavy. Are you willing to surrender to love him more than your father, love him more than your mother, love him more than your wife, your children and your brothers, your sisters, and love him more than yourself? Are you going to surrender to the call to publicly carry the wooden crossbar, proclaiming Jesus' rule, authority, and power and control over your life? The Bible doesn't mix words about the number of categories of people that will stand before him when you die. There are those who will continue to reject Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and those who are passionately going to pursue it. There's no third category. No neutral stance before a perfect God. No other way to come before him boldly with great assurance that he will accept you other than trusting in this Jesus. No excuse will be accepted. No occupation will get you there. No service is going to pay for it. No church attendance is going to cover it. No no donation number will buy your way in. No tally, no documented good deeds will make your imperfect life perfect. It just won't. For a perfect king to overlook your imperfect rebellion against him, you need Jesus. That's why the therefore exists in verse 33. So therefore, 
If any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, renounce all. Renounce all other means of pursuit. Place all of your actions within his actions. All of your missions within his mission. All of your purposes within his purpose. That is what discipleship is. God-centered, God-focused, God-pursuing life. Affecting all areas of it. It's challenging. We botch it. Far more often than we get it right, don't we? (laughs) Where are you at today with this Jesus? With his actions, his mission, and his purpose. Where are we at today as a church? Maybe you're here today and you've never heard of this man named Jesus about his life and his purpose and the love that motivated him to come and provide a way for you to be set free from the guilt and the pain that's in this world. I'd encourage you to think about this man and trust him. With everything that you are, trust him. Surrender to his kingship and see that in his presence is the fullness of joy unimaginable. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you have experienced this Jesus, but you've been confronted with the reality that you aren't experiencing his kingship or pursuing his mission and his purpose in your life. Maybe you've been preoccupied with the difficulties or the duties of your life and you haven't been thinking about this story. His actions, his mission, or his purposes. My charge for you is to take a step of faith by digging into it. So that you might again be passionate about the story, about the person that is your salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, I came across this verse several years ago. Um, It says it this way. We always are carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What Paul is saying, if you desire Christ to be put on display in your life, you must daily be fixed on the death of Jesus. Be reminded and challenges with the realities of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if you are to live that mission out, that is what you need on a daily basis. Dig, dig into this. Fall more madly in love with this Lord, with this King, with your Savior. Maybe you're here today and... This has encouraged you to go and you're like jazzed up, like crazy jazzed up, like Aaron on steroids or something. And you're ready to go and uh, start handing out tracts, you know, to people on the corner, um, serve in the soup kitchens, evangelize this world, spend more time in prayer and in God's word. And I said, praise the Lord for that energy. Just one word of caution. Don't let the work of the, ministry, the mission detract you from your personal love of the mission and of Jesus.
Don't let working unto the mission be your Lord. The question would be, how are you trusting in Jesus' work while you're partaking in Jesus' work? Maybe for some of you, you're here, and the thing that's hit you most is that you're a Christian, and as I alluded to before, you just feel like you've botched it more times than you've got it right. And you felt the weight and conviction about who this man is and how you should live in light of that, not out of a desire to earn it, but out of thankfulness and out of a, des- out of a desire to acknowledge his kingship and lordship over your life. Let me encourage you. This text is hard. It's challenging. And it's, its intent is to nudge us, all of us, towards loving and cherishing this beautiful story, this mission, this Jesus. And you may feel unfaithful towards its call. I know I do. Every single day of my life, I feel unfaithful to it. And I would encourage you to not allow the discouragement of the way that you feel place your eyes on yourself. Allow the conviction, that's a holy conviction, allow that conviction to push you towards the cross of Jesus. Be at peace that this Jesus has already accomplished everything that you need. Find the mission that he has uniquely imparted to all of us and allow that to be a source of worship in your own heart. If it's being a student, identify why you are in the stage of life that you are in right now. Why are you, get practical, why are you in the classes that you are in right now? Why do you have the professor that you have right now? Why do you have the peers that you have right now? Why are you in the study groups that you are a part of right now? How are you striving to put Jesus on display? How does this impact the way you communicate to your peers, your, your whoever, your professor? How does it make you look at your, your busy work? Okay? How does that impact your attitude towards those study groups when everybody sits around that table and just starts complaining about the assignment? How does the pursuit of Jesus impact that? Maybe it's work. How are you striving to see the mission of the gospel in your workplace? How are you striving to publicly display Jesus' authority on your life in the workplace? How does this impact the way you communicate to your peers, to your boss? How does this help you and motivate you to strive towards excellence in the things that you do? When you hand in that assignment, are you acknowledging that you're working diligently unto the Lord and that your craftsmanship, your workmanship is a, an example in which you can take that and say, God has blessed me, I want to bless you. How does that drive you towards excellence in what you do? If it's marriage, how are you striving to lay down your life for your spouse? Speak specifically to men. How do you come home and how are you ready to serve instead of be served? Man, that's hard. 
Is the gospel being put on display by how you communicate to others about your spouse when they're not there or if they are there? Is the gospel driving out bitterness by being grounded in forgiveness amongst your relationship? If it's parenthood, are you seeing the mundane tasks in light of the gospel, this mission, allowing it to give perspective and be a source of worship for you day in and day out? Church family, we have a great calling because we have heard and received one great story centered on one great person who has one magnificent mission. And my prayer is that we collectively encourage one another to pursue it passionately. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as the, as the worship team comes up. Lord Jesus, we are so unfaithful towards your mission and towards your purpose, and yet you in your faithfulness continue to be patient, continue to be faithful, and to continue to provide. Lord, we just want to continue to grow in our love and our appreciation for what you have done, for what you are going to do in this city of Greeley, in this church of church project, Lord. We want to be about your mission. We want to be about your gospel, Lord. And so I ask that you give us very tangible ways in which to extend that gospel, to extend that love to the people in this world that need it, so desperately need it, Lord. Lord, help us to love one another in this room, not out of a desire because or that we deserve it, Lord, but because you first loved us. Lord, help us to, to individually grow in our love and our appreciation so that we can corporately move on mission for you. Lord, we love you. You are great and greatly to be praised. We ask this all in your name. Amen.